0: So we turn in the Old Testament, our sermon text for this morning, to the prophet Amos, chapter 9, and just reading the last section of that chapter, verse 11 through verse 15. God's holy and inspired word given to us, his people, from the prophet Amos, chapter 9, verse 11 through 15, God's word. Give your attention to the reading of it. Amos 9, beginning in 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So it's not unusual that we get good news and bad news at about the same time. And the bad news can make the good that much harder to swallow. It's kind of like if you were flying private and as you're cruising at 30,000 feet, the pilot comes back and says, the bad news is the plane is crashing. The good is you'll survive if you jump. Or the doctor tells you, we can for sure cure your cancer, but we have to amputate your left leg. Yes, it's great to hear that you're going to live, but the fear of parachuting for the first time or losing your leg makes you pause to wonder Is it really worth it? And this can be even more the case when it comes to our pride. You can get your job back, but you have to admit that you messed up. You can reconcile with a friend, but you have to confess that it was all your fault. Having to eat such a sour piece of humble pie can be too much for us. The humiliating bad news we judge to be too costly. The good isn't worth it. Well, this is the challenge that the Lord puts before Israel as he sets before them the wonderful future deliverance as long as they do not stumble over it and its offense. So we have pulled into the final harbor in this cruise called Amos. And from this relatively brief book, we've come to know Amos as a bit of a downer or at least his messages, have been completely serious and bitter. From the opening roar of Yahweh as the lion warrior, it's been nonstop sin and foreboding destruction. First, well-armed with the law, Amos has relentlessly laid down the gross perversities of the northern Israelites. And their felonies can be grouped under three headings. One, the people hated justice and righteousness. Therefore they took every chance to oppress, cheat, pervert, and take advantage of. It was kind of like a wicked game of Calvin Ball. There were no rules other than stepping on people to get the wind for yourself. Thus the weak and the vulnerable were particular particularly got the abusive end of this stick. Two, the Israelites loved their unlawful, hypocritical, and apostate worship. Now, there was some explicit worship of false gods in the north, but most of their devotion was directed at the Lord. They flooded into Bethel with tons of sacrifices, with exuberant music and rich feasting. And then around the golden calf, direct, dedicated to the Lord, the Israelites were proud of their extensively religious lives. Third, and finally, Amos castigated the the northerners for their arrogant love of money. As the economy boomed, the Israelites indulged in luxuries and laziness. From ivory couches to wine by the bowl, money was life and life was money. And this obsession with affluence filled them with a proud sense of security and ease. They felt immune to justice and disaster. Nothing could touch them. Therefore, for for this obese wickedness, Amos heralded one sermon of doom after another. The Lord pronounced a guilty verdict. He issued a sentence of destruction, and nothing would avert the coming wrath. Twice, Amos tried to intercede for mercy, but the Lord was not in the mood. The dark day of God's wrath was coming, and its pain and death was inescapable. Famine would starve, the sword would slay, fire consume, and there would be no end to the dead bodies. Their homes would burn, the shrines would be demolished, and the few remaining survivors would be cast off and tossed among the nations to be lost for good. Indeed, from the opening verses in chapter 1 through chapter 9, verse 10, it's hard, if not impossible, to unearth one glimmer of good news in Amos. Now, the sinful people deserved it, and the Lord is just, but dark and depressing has been the preaching of Amos. And yet Amos did enjoy his surprises. That is, he would lead... His words would lead in one direction and then finish with an unexpected surprise. And this is what he does in the last four verses of his book. In this way, Amos was strict about keeping to his preset dinner menu. His multi-course preaching menu permitted no sugar in the earlier courses. Dessert was reserved exclusively for this final course. And what a dose of sweetness Amos has been keeping a secret. Now, once again, Amos peers into the future, and this time it's even further down the halls of history. And for this far-off day, the Lord records a promise. I will raise up the fallen booth of David. He will restore what has crumbled of David. But what exactly does this mean? What is this booth of David? <clears throat> well, this is a play on the standard phrase, the house of David, that we see throughout the Old Testament. And David's house was at the center of the Davidic covenant, which the Lord swore to keep forever. And this house included the everlasting kingdom promised to God, or by God to David, but it more narrowly referred to David's dynasty. A house was a perpetual succession of sons that would sit on David's throne, even down to that one everlasting son of David. Yet it is noteworthy that Amos relabels this royal dynasty as a booth. Now, a house suggests a sturdy, long-standing structure, but a booth is a fragile seasonal shack. A booth is a hut hastily put together with scrap lumber and branches, tied together with twine and duct tape. It's a flimsy shanty that doesn't even measure up to being called a shed or a cabin. Indeed, not only is this a rickety hut, but it's fallen down or it is collapsing. This portrays the Davidic kingship as sickly and firm. David's throne has crumbled into a battered chair that looks like it was just pulled out of the dumpster. Now, it isn't clear if this shack um, refers merely to the poor state of David's kingship in the present or to its complete ruin. That is, is the royal chair just in disrepair or is it plain broken and empty? Now, it could be either but the imagery favors the total wreckage of David's shack. Nevertheless, the Lord promises a thorough renewal and restoration. He says the breaches will be repaired, the ruins will be made like new, the Lord will resurrect the booth of David with the splendor and glory that it had in the days of old. This means that the Lord will put a king on the rebuilt throne who is truly a man after God's heart and who will be the king of salvation for all of God's people. The upgraded hut of David will contain the Savior for God's people. And this is the best news possible for the people of Israel under judgment. For those exiles abandoned among the nations who are left without God and without hope in the world, this heralds a redemption a future, a renewed and reconciled relationship with the Lord. It means that judgment will not have the last word, but after death and destruction, there will be life and salvation. For the Israelites, staring down the barrel of the day of the Lord, this is a robust and potent gospel comfort. And yet this sweet pill wouldn't be so easy for the northern Israelites to swallow. Remember that the northern kingdom had declared its independence and rebelled from the Davidic kingdom for nearly 200 years. They had cast off Davidic authority due to cruel taxation and forced labor under King Solomon. It was an abusive and cruel Davidic kingship that they threw off for their own liberty. And ever since this time, the northern kingdom has been at war with Judah, or considered them to be a foe, or at best just a competitor. To tell the northern Israelite to look to the David's dynasty for salvation is like saying that America needs to go back under British rule. This is like telling a Ukrainian, I will save you by Putin. No way. This is too offensive. This gospel pill is too big to swallow. It's a therapy too painful and degrading that it's not worth it. You can practically hear the Israelites saying, no, thank you. We would rather live with my cancer than to suffer and go back to David. Yeah, for Amos's audience, this is an indecent gospel. In their ears, it's like telling a victim to go back to their abuser. It's too much. And yet the contours of this promise of salvation are truly glorious and ideal. For one, the Lord will restore the Davidic dynasty as in the days of old. This was before. The kings of David became cruel and tyrannical. Moreover, the dominion of this new David will possess Edom and many nations. Now, Edom here most likely represents one among many. The key being that numerous nations are those over whom Yahweh will call his name. And to have the Lord's name called over you is a mark of ownership. It indicates covenant relationship. If the Lord puts his name upon you, you are his special people, and he is your one and only God and Savior. This, then, is the Lord promising to release his salvation among the nations. This isn't just the salvation of the northern remnant, but it's bringing in the nations into a saving relationship with Yahweh. The Lord here is forecasting his gospel redemption going to the nations. And it will happen through the restored shack of David. The kingship of David will become international. No longer will David's throne be a parochial rule over an insignificant country. But the new domain of David will spread across the globe to encompass many nations and peoples. And with this promise of international salvation set before us, it's evident that James quoted well this passage in Acts 15. There, at the Jerusalem Council, a most pressing issue was facing the young church. This was the question of Gentile salvation. The elders and the apostles in Jerusalem couldn't deny that God's salvation had overflowed to the Gentiles. But what must the Gentiles do to be saved? Did the Gentiles have to be circumcised and keep the whole Mosaic law or not? Did the Gentiles enter by law or by faith alone? Well, after hearing the testimony of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas that the Gentiles were saved by faith, James, the brother of Jesus, rose to to deliver his decisive speech, where he cites these verses from Amos 9. And the fulfillment far far exceeds the expectation. First, the fallen hut of David being rebuilt matches our Savior perfectly. Until Jesus showed up, there had been no Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem For over 600 years, a dynasty that hasn't had a king on the throne for six centuries is dead and gone. Next, when it came to royal pomp and splendor, Jesus' person and ministry was very shack-like. Jesus rode no majestic war steed, no famous sword hung from his belt. He wasn't raised in marble halls. He didn't have the support of the rich priests and nobles. Jesus' ministry had no interest in politics or worldly power. Finally, the hut of Jesus fell down. He died. More so, he was executed as a criminal, a pretend monarch. A living dog is better than a dead king. The mortal shack of Jesus' body tumbled into ruin. To believe in an unimpressive Messiah like Jesus was hard enough for the Judeans of the day. But to hope in a dead Messiah? This is downright offensive. And yet the fallen hut of David did not remain in the dust. Rather, Jesus rose from the grave, he was resurrected from destruction, and as the resurrected righteous one, Jesus merited that everlasting throne of David. He received from the Father an international kingdom that will never end. Christ was granted a name that would be called over all people from every tribe. In Christ, the kingdom of God became an international domain of all of those who call upon the name of Jesus in faith and their children. Indeed, the saving reign of Jesus reaches the nations here, not by circumcision or by law-keeping, but it embraces them through the name of the Lord. All of grace, Jesus Christ sovereignly puts his name upon all that the Father gave him. And in faith, we respond by claiming the name of Jesus. Therefore, James quotes this passage perfectly to prove his point. It shows forth the resurrected Christ as the restored booth of David, the eternal king. It heralds the salvation of Jesus going to the nations as his kingdom being worldwide. And it publishes the redemption that is applied by faith alone. It comes by God placing his name upon us and we responding in faith. The only requirement is receive in receiving Christ's salvation is not being offended. Believing in a king who died is offensive to worldly power. Trusting in the works of Jesus insult our sense that we need to contribute to our salvation. But as Jesus said, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. To the modern mind, looking to a dead Hebrew 2,000 years ago to save you from your sin unto everlasting life is distasteful and repulsive. If something's going to fix all our modern problems, then it must lie within humanity and our scientific powers. But no, salvation deliverance, and true life is not located within us, individually or collectively, but at rest in trusting in Jesus alone who died and rose for us. Through faith alone, by grace alone, and in Christ alone, this is our eternal life. Thus may we not stumble over Jesus and his salvation, but may we embrace him with joyful faith. And yet, this is not the final word of Amos. James quotes verse 11 and 12 here, but Amos penned three more verses. And this last triad bubbles over with all the rich blessings that the Lord will unleash upon the restored Davidic king and his people. By the new king, the Lord promises to restore the fortunes of his people. Indeed, their crops will be so bumper that they'll still be bringing in the harvest when it's time to start planting for the next season. The mountains will overflow with the sweet, and the hills will sway with the fat. Their ruins will be raised up into shiny new cities, vineyards will be planted, gardens will be put in, and they will feast upon the fruits and wines year-round. Indeed, the Lord will plant Israel in her land, and she will never be uprooted again. Like a never-ending tree, God's people will take root and never die. Well, this picture of beatitude is surely utopic. This is paradise unblemished and imperishable. The question, though, is when were these verses fulfilled? The promise in verses 11 and 12 came to pass with the resurrection of Christ and the gospel going to the nations. But when do these blissful promises take place? Well, it's pretty clear from the history books that such ideal prosperity and peace have never made an appearance. After exile, the Lord did bring the Israelites back to their land, but they never enjoyed such lavish blessings. When Jesus showed up, doing miracles, the crowds hoped they would usher in paradise. But Jesus had no interest in agricultural success or expanding real estate. And when the church was founded and began spreading out, it was never granted such peaceful affluence. And the ministry of the apostles did not consider such prosperity to be an objective of this age. Indeed, the apostles painted our life in the church not one of rich homes and abundant food, but as one of the cross. Hardship and service, suffering and shame, this is the lot God ordained for the church in these last days. Just as Christ endured the way of the cross in his earthly life, so this is the path for the church, for us. Therefore, when will God bring to pass these final three verses? To what do they point to? They point us to heaven. Yes, these last words of Amos speak of eternity. They direct us to the heavenly paradise in the new Jerusalem. Here, Amos points our hope to our own resurrected resurrection and life eternal before the face of God. These promises are not for this age, but for the age to come. And this, too, can be offensive. Within the church, there are many voices that demand that the gospel produce such prosperity and peace here and now. If the gospel doesn't improve society now, then it's no good. The gospel must remove the cross and bring rich blessings sea to shining sea. This, too, though, is a deception of the evil one. The church under this age is cruciform in in form, just like our Savior. Now is the time for suffering service and opposition from the world. Now we possess the riches of Christ in jars of clay, while glory is yet to come. Currently, we bear the cross in this sin-cursed world. But compared to the glory that Jesus has in store for us, this cross is light and short. Thus these idyllic promises of mountains flowing with wine and gardens full of fruit lift up our hearts to heaven, to where Christ himself is seated. For Jesus has delivered us from sin and judgment, presently all of grace. And he's keeping us for the bliss of heaven. Without a doubt, then, this is the best news ever. Therefore, may you not be offended by Christ. Let our faith never stumble over the gospel, but with full joy, may we ever proclaim the name that has been so graciously put upon us, Jesus Christ. And may Christ continue to grow his church here and all over the world until he brings us to our eternal home. To that new Jerusalem where we will live before the light of Christ's face forever. And all for his eternal grace, eternal glory, and to the praise of his grace. Amen. Let's pray.